0: It might be supposed that philosophy of all subjects must be free from the vagaries of fashion, but that is not so. In philosophy, just as in other human activities, in each generation, there seems to be a reaction against the values of the previous generation. So, writers that have been widely studied fall into neglect, and new figures come to the fore. The outcome is apt to be that at any given time and place, many of the same philosophers are being studied by everyone. And a number of other well-known philosophers are being neglected by at any rate nearly everyone then a new generation comes along and re-evaluates one or two of the neglected philosophers so that they then come back into fashion and so it goes on among the philosophers to whom this has happened most conspicuously in the last 200 years is schopenhauer for most of his lifetime roughly the first half of the 19th century he was almost totally disregarded Then, in the second half of the 19th century, he became one of the most famous and influential of all philosophers. Then, in the first half of the 20th century, he fell into a neglect so profound that even most teachers of philosophy no longer read him. But now, in our own time, he is unmistakably coming back to people's attention, not least because he was a formative influence on one of the most important 20th century philosophers, Wittgenstein. Arthur Schopenhauer was born in Danzig, now Gdansk, in 1788. His family had been rich Hanseatic merchants for generations, and the upbringing he received was aimed not at an academic life, but at training him to step into an international business. However, he had no interest in the family firm. He insisted on going to university instead, and thereafter he used his private means to finance a lifetime of independent study and writing. His doctorate thesis has become a minor classic, in spite of its title, on the fourfold root of the principle of sufficient reason. And he was still in his twenties during the four years when he composed his masterpiece, The World as Will and Representation, which was published in 1818, the year in which he was thirty. From then until his death in 1860, at the age of 72, he published a great deal, but all of it was to extend or elaborate or enrich the philosophical system which he had constructed in his 20s and from which he never departed. He produced a huge collection of essays called *Pererga* and Paralipomena, and two short but pungent books on ethics called The Basis of Morality and The Freedom of the Will. There was also a little book called On the Will in Nature, designed to show that his ideas were supported by discoveries in science. Most important of all, he published a revised edition of The World as Will and Representation, which was more than twice the length of the original volume. There are several remarkable things about him. Although in direct succession to Kant's, his own work was securely in the mainstream of Western philosophy, he was genuinely knowledgeable about Hinduism and Buddhism, and is the only major Western philosopher to draw serious and interesting parallels between Western and Eastern thought. He was the first major Western philosopher to be openly and explicitly atheist, He placed the arts higher in the scheme of things and had more to say about them than any other important philosopher, and perhaps partly for that reason his influence on creative artists of the front rank has exceeded that of any other philosopher of the modern era. He was himself among the supreme writers of German prose. Many of his sentences are so brilliantly aphoristic that they've been torn out of context by the hundred and published separately in little books of epigrams. Intellectually, this is a catastrophe because it obscures the fact that Schopenhauer is first and foremost a system builder whose philosophy can be understood only as a whole. Of the books in print about it in English at the time of making this program, I have to confess to you that the longest and most recent is by me, but I can't very well interview myself, so I've invited the author of one of the others to come along and discuss Schopenhauer with me. My guest is, in any case, the most distinguished living historian of philosophy in the English language, Frederick Copleston, Emeritus Professor in the University of London. In addition to his extended treatment of Schopenhauer in his nine-volume History of Philosophy, he's written a separate book about him called Arthur Schopenhauer, Philosopher of Pessimism. Well, Professor Copleston, I think the place we ought to start is by addressing ourselves to the question of what it was that Schopenhauer set out to do. Perhaps I should let you take that up.
1: Well, Ms. McGee, I think that, um, like other original philosophers, a great many of them, uh, Schopenhauer wanted to understand the world in which he found himself, the world in which he lived, or one could say he tried to form a coherent, unified, interpretation of human experience, or to gain conceptual mastery over the world of phenomena, the plurality of phenomena. I think that is it. And to do that, Schopenhauer thought that it was necessary to identify the underlying reality. If one asked why he thought that it was an underlying reality to identify, I suppose that the reason, one main reason, is that he started from the premises of Immanuel Kant, and that um, he thought that the, uh, the way in which we see the world is a human perspective, that the human mind is pre-programmed to see the world in certain ways, and we can't, for example, experience objects except as situated in space and time, a subject to spatial temporal relations, and a subject to the relation of causality but um it, it obviously doesn't follow that because things appear to one in a, a certain way that that is how they are apart from the way in which they appear as they are in themselves. Kant certainly took it that the the concept of a thing in itself is not a, as that which appears but um, is can be considered uh, in distinction from the from the appearance was a sensible idea and Schopenhauer took that over.
0: I think this is such an important idea, and we're going to come back to it yes. uh, in different ways, that it's worth going over again because it is It's difficult, I think, for people who are new to it to really get hold of it sometimes. Um, Kant had argued that uh, All possible experience can only come to us through our faculties, through our sensory and mental apparatus. And therefore, what we could experience depended not only on what there is out there to experience, but also on the nature of the faculties that we possess, what our faculties could handle, what they do to what they handle, how they handle it, and so on. So that all experience as such is subject dependent. And he went on from that to argue that, therefore, we could see total reality as being divided into two. There are things as they are in themselves, independently of being experienced, and to such things we have no means of access. And then there's things as they appear to us, the world of appearances, the world as it comes to us through experience, and that's what we know. That's the world of common sense, the world of science, the, our total world. Now uh, said, uh, Schopenhauer took this up from Kant and said, now what, can we get any pointers, can we get any hints from a close analysis of this world of experience as to what it might be uh, that underlies it, as to what it might be that lies behind it? That at least is part of the thought, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, I think it's important to r- remember that for Schopenhauer, there can be only one underlying reality, uh, uh, Kant himself. Uh, some- took it as a matter of common sense, I think, that if there's the table as it appears, then there must be the table as it it is in itself, and if the carpet as it appears, then there's the carpet in itself, that there are a multitude of things in themselves. But of course, if um, we think away spatial and temporal relations and the causal relation, there's no means of uh, distinguishing one thing from another so that if the underlying reality transcends space and time and causality and is quite other than the world of phenomena, then the um, canon you know, number one, the plurality or multiplicity belongs to the world of phenomena, but the underlying reality must be uh, one.
0: These ideas that we are dealing with are really so difficult that I think that is worth going over again as well. I think it'll help a lot of people. That uh, uh, Schopenhauer argued that For one thing to be different from another thing, for for anything to be different from anything else at all, this idea of differentiation only made sense with reference either to time or to space or to both. If two things are identical in time and identical in space, then they're identical, period, they're the same thing. So the notion of there being different things, in the plural, could only apply to this world of our experience, this world of space and time. Outside that world, it could make no sense whatever to talk of anything being different. From anything else. And therefore, I'd just like to to complete this thought, therefore whatever there is outside this world of our experience must be one and undifferentiated. And in taking that step from Kant, he thought Kant had been wrong in talking about things in the plural, in themselves, things as they are in themselves, that it must be one undifferentiated something that lies behind this world. Now, in saying that, he took an enormous stride towards one of the central beliefs of Hinduism and Buddhism. Those religions also believe that behind this highly differentiated, plural, variegated world of phenomena, there is one single undifferentiated something that manifests itself as this world. And one striking thing is that Schopenhauer didn't get the belief From Buddhism or Hinduism. He got it by arguing from premises that he derived from his predecessor Western philosophers and then discovered that he'd reached a conclusion which was similar to that of the Buddhists and the Hindus.
1: Yes, Uh, well I'd like to go back a moment to the um, to your your, what you've been just saying about the uh, uh, only one underlying reality. I think that if one starts from the premises of Immanuel Kant, I mean, I wouldn't myself, but if one does, then um, Schopenhauer's right, because if the, there's no means of distinguishing uh, one thing in itself from another, I think, except as a matter of common sense, um, there's no formal way of distinguishing once you accept uh, the Kantian premises that Schopenhauer did.
0: Taking the argument to the next stage, so to speak, Schopenhauer thought, didn't he, that if we analyse this world of phenomena, uh, we might get from it some clues as to what the underlying one, which he called, following Kant, the the noumenon or the noumenon. It's a word from the Greek. We might get some idea of what the noumenon is, mm-hmm. and I think his great starting point was this, that. Kant had argued that all our knowledge of material objects must come to us and can come to us only through our senses and there be, as it were, put together by our minds. Schopenhauer said, well, this is almost exactly right, but there is one absolutely crucial exception to it, which amazingly Kant seems to have overlooked, and that is that for every individual one of us, there is one unique physical object in the world which we We know in the way Kant says we know physical objects, but we also know in a radically and entirely different way, namely directly from inside, and that is ourselves, our own bodies, our own persons, They are physical objects in the way that any other physical object is a physical object, and they can be seen and touched and heard and known in all the ways that other physical objects are known. But each one of us, in addition to that, has immediate non-sensory knowledge of this one physical object from inside, directly. And Schopenhauer thought that this knowledge of a physical object from inside might provide us with the key to the inner nature of
1: things that 's what he thought personally, I think that if one starts with kant 's premises, then one must accept kant 's agnosticism i don 't see there 's any way of getting out of it, but uh, certainly you are quite right, of course that that is what Schopenhauer thought that uh, that there was an access through the uh, through the body. The only difficulty is it seems to me that our idea of uh, even our idea of an ultimate reality is um, belongs on those premises to the world of phenomena. And there's no way outside the circle. And beyond the simply lies um, silence, as Wittgenstein was to say in the Tractatus. And um, however, it's but quite ex- perfectly true that Schopenhauer thought there was a hint given through our experience yeah. of our bodies, yes.
0: I would want to defend Schopenhauer up to this point in the argument because he makes the point that the knowledge that we have of ourselves directly from inside Is not knowledge of Kant's thing in itself and there are two or three very important reasons why it's not. One is that the knowledge we have from ourselves from inside is still only a kind of superficial knowledge. Uh, Decades in advance of Freud he argued very specifically and at length that most of our own inner life and motivation and so on is unknown to us that our actions and our speech and our decisions are for the most part unconsciously motivated, so that in a very important sense we don't even know our full inner selves. Another reason why he thought it wasn't knowledge of Kant's thing in itself is that it exists in the dimension of time, though it doesn't exist in the dimension of space, and time can be a characteristic only of this, this world of ours. And there was a third reason, which I think is worth mentioning, and it's this. Uh, Schopenhauer argued that all knowledge must be of a dual form, subject and object, knower and known, observer and observed, that for there to be any knowledge at all of anything, you must have something that's grasped and something that's grasping it. And this differentiation can, for reasons that we were giving only a few minutes ago in a different context, Differentiation can only exist within this phenomenal world, this world of experience. And therefore, it's only in this world that there can be knowledge or can be consciousness.
1: Yes, that uh, Schopenhauer anticipated f- uh, Freud in, um, in remarkable ways is perfectly true and uh, helps to show the importance and, uh, of, um, of Schopenhauer in the history of thought, I think. But of course, it's, it's also true, I think, that all our ideas of the infraconscious, the idea that there is an infraconscious, that all belongs to the phenomenal world, and um, there we are. I mean, Kant's premises, Kant's conclusion. Mm. Um, <laughs> now we must
0: start <laughs> to say something about how he, uh, how he did point across the gulf, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, towards the noumenon. He thought that. there was something about this inner experience of ours that gave us a clue didn't he as to what the ultimate nature of things outside this world is can you take up the story from there
1: i'd say that for example that my bodily movements for schopenhauer would be um, expressions of desire or he he would say use the word will um perhaps um, unfortunately but Um, One might use force or energy, but at any rate um, if I move my arm, I will to move my arm. For Schopenhauer, as later for Wittgenstein, there's no um, entity called a will that is distinct from the movement of the arm and causes it, but the uh, the volition is the inside, as it were, of the movement, and the physical movement is the outside. Not uh, trying to deny that there is some inside. And uh, if we consider that, and as you say, the unconscious motivation that lies behind a good deal of our actions, we can at any rate get the idea of a reality as a kind of infraconscious, below-conscious drive um, that uh, Schopenhauer called will, and that perhaps some better name can be given to as uh, force or energy, something of that kind but that um, we have that hint as to the nature of the ultimate reality as an unconscious striving, a striving for existence, for life, for self-assertion, whatever you can describe it in various
0: ways, of course. Mm. Yes, he thought, didn't he, that if we analyze this world of experience, the world of Mm. science, if you like, the world of common sense, uh, which does consist, for the most part, of matter in motion, And most of it is matter in colossal amounts. I mean galaxies and solar systems and so on traveling through the cosmos at at gigantic speeds approaching that of light. So the whole material universe consists of matter in motion um, to a degree that, so to speak, defies our imagination to really conceptualize it. And he argued, I mean, he, there were steps in the argument that we haven't time to go through, but he argued, following on from Kant, that ult- what is ultimate in all this must be energy. He argued that matter is, as it were, instantiated energy, that a physical object is a space filled with force, that ultimately all matter must be transmutable into energy. And it's very striking, I think, that that particular doctrine of his has been entirely borne out by 20th century science. When the physicists in our century arrived at this conclusion, they thought they were propounding something revolutionary and incredible. But in fact, Kant and Schopenhauer arrived at this conclusion over 100 years before them by pure rational reasoning of it out from ordinary experience.
1: Yes, when one's talking about theoretical physics, one has to remember that so many uh, physicists are sometimes uh, um, loath to say that uh, the terms such as energy and so on denote any reality, aren't they? That they're they're of use within the framework of uh, of theoretical physics, but that it can't be taken that there's some kind of metaphysical reality called energy or so on. But I I, I I can quite see the point of substituting energy for Schopenhauer's will in
0: Well, you're attributing to me a step I don't quite take. I mean, the... the, the, the well,
1: I'm glad. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I
0: mean, what I wanted to say was this, mm. Schopenhauer argues that what is ultimate in this world of phenomena, in this world mm. of experience, is energy, Yes. and at the scientific level, in speaking from the standpoint of our own day, he can be said to have been remarkably prevoyant about nice. that, to have been correct. Now, he says that mm-hmm. what the, the metaphysical, the underlying noumenon, is whatever manifests itself as this energy. Mm-hmm. And throughout the cosmos, I mean, in the, in the stars, and the solar system, in animals, in trees, in falling stones, in ourselves, in everything. Uh, It's the unconscious energy that forms us in the womb that makes our organs work while we sleep and so on. And I understand him as saying that the nearest we come to getting any glimmering of what that is in experience is the experience we have inside ourselves of the energy, the go, the force, the will to exist, the will to survive, that somehow ultimate and irreducible push or drive, which is underlying to everything else.
1: Yes, but then, of course, Schopenhauer wasn't indifferent to the uh, ulti- uh, to the underlying reality, was he? I mean, uh, he adopted quite uh, definite attitudes and negative attitudes uh, towards it, disvaluing it. And um, uh, energy is such a, a neutral word that it, um, I mean, it's hardly it, say whether one approves of energy or disapproves of energy, likes energy or doesn't like energy. It's very difficult to say, whereas Schopenhauer, as we're both very well aware, I mean, had a very definite attitude towards the ultimate reality and its manifestations.
0: But I think it would have been better if he'd used the word energy, because he decided to give the term, the name will, to this metaphysical reality, and I think that's misled people ever since, because we can't help associating the idea of a personality with a will, Mm. or the idea of an aim with a will. Mm. When Schopenhauer himself reiterates at different points in his writings that he doesn't mean that, that in his sense of the word will, everything has a will. A dead star or a stone Mm. has as much will as you or I, that it is simply Uh, the metaphysical substratum, as it were, in everything, that it's not personal, not alive, not organic, not... uh, has no aim, and so on. I think it's misled, people, an impersonal word like energy would have been very much better, in my
1: opinion. Well, I think you're quite right on the, on that particular point. Uh, my uh, my own point that I was hinting at was that as um, Schopenhauer looked on the ultimate reality as perfectly revolting and was willing to speak of it on occasion, even in moral terms, as wicked, um, I mean, one wouldn't naturally be led to think of energy as, as revolting or as not revolting, at least <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, um, <laughs> and certainly not as wicked. (laughs) And uh, so uh, that's what I meant, that he has this definite um, attitude towards the ultimate reality and towards its manifestation, of course, this world, empirical world.
0: Well, now, perhaps we can, as it were, change our tack a little and confront that head-on. Up to this point in our discussion, we've been sketching what Schopenhauer's picture of reality was, what he thought the overall picture was. Uh, Now let's talk about his attitude towards it. He thought that the world was an appalling place, a terrible place. He thought it was full of injustice, disease, repression, that the hospitals and prisons of the world were full of people going through the most appalling sufferings and tortures, that nature was red in tooth and claw, that in every hour of every day thousands upon thousands of animals are tearing each other to pieces alive and devouring each other alive and that the whole thing is a sort of appalling nightmare. It's an Mm -hmm. incredible vision, and it's expressed in prose of such dramatic power that no one who's ever read it is likely to forget it. But that was his view, wasn't it, of the way things are, Mm -hmm. and therefore that the underlying metaphysical reality must be such as to express itself in these terms, Mm -hmm. and must therefore be something terrible, Mm -hmm. something nightmarish. That's why he is renowned quite rightly for being a pessimist. The pessimist above all philosophers, a bleak black view of reality.
1: Mm. Of course he didn't leave it there, did he? Um, I mean he had some suggested some ways out, the temporary way through aesthetic contemplation, through art, through the creation of art and through the appreciation of art which stills desire and um, selfishness and um, longing and hostility and conflict uh, for the time being at any rate, just as one can go into an art gallery and uh, and look at the pictures and without um, desiring anything, but then of course one comes out and runs into a cafe or a pub and um, desire, need and desire reassert themselves. But it's a temporary way out. Uh, I think it was a mistake for Schopenhauer to bring in the um, uh, that point, the Platonic ideas, is in- intermediate between the ultimate reality and the work of art, because I don't see this much place in, in his system. But uh, he's quite right in, in making a distinction between uh, the, the aesthetic attitude towards things and um, the attitude of um, uh, trying to appropriate them and, uh, and use them for one's own uh, advantage. It's quite true there. There is a temporary
0: way out. Um, Yes, you're making the point that he thought that the aesthetic attitude was disinterested. Yes. That normally, if I see a plate of food, I think in terms of eating it, this is something Mm. for my own sustenance or to satisfy my lusts or desires or greed or just simply hunger or whatever it might be. Whereas if I see a Dutch painting of a plate mm-hmm. of food, I don't see it in that light at all. No. I see it as an entirely sort of impersonal, disinterested way. And then I'm conscious of its presence or absence of aesthetic qualities, yes. its beauty or lack of beauty, it may be. But, but it's a quite different way of looking at things. Yes. One, one point that I think is worth drawing attention to in Schopenhauer's aesthetic is that he did think that the arts provided us with a special way of knowing things and, by that very token, he did not regard them as a means of expression. If I produced a work of art, my, what I'm doing primarily, according to Schopenhauer, isn't expressing my emotions or giving expression to my feelings, it's expressing insight or knowledge into something about the way things are.
1: I think one can give meaning to that, as in the, um, the idea that was going around when I was t- undergraduate in the 20s, I mean, they were, um, propagated largely by Clive Bell's significant form, one might put that in instead of the platonic ideas, something like that. I think it's as to the idea of truth in art, I think it's a very interesting subject and a difficult subject and I've never really made up my mind um, about it. As to uh, the truth in art, um, I think one must have, uh, though it's rather off the point, um, an, an, an analogical view of uh, of truth, in which uh, truth, according to the context, can be understood in different ways as correspondence in one context, but not, I think, uh, in in art. It wouldn't take it would be another kind of truth, and that has to be examined. I think it's a perfectly respectable line of thought, certainly, uh, mm. and, w- and one well worth pursuing. Um I, I and certainly uh, making a critical remark about schopenhauer's use of the platonic ideas i didn't mean to say that they, uh, i didn't think there was anything in his view of art mm. because I do I think it's very well worth considering certainly
0: and it's had an enormous appeal to many great artists oh hasn't yes, it? certainly who obviously therefore thought that it corresponded to their conception yes. of what it was they were doing
1: undoubtedly yes, yeah. undoubtedly
0: I think we must move on now to to, to consideration of, of schopenhauer's morals. What would you say was the place for morality or ethics in a an, a world as painted by Schopenhauer?
1: Well, as you know, Schopenhauer insists that as there's one ultimate, ultimate reality, and each one of us is identical with that one ultimate reality, therefore, in some sense, we're all one, ultimately. And he uses that for advocating um, uh, compassion, sympathy, um, agape, uh, love is, is distinct from erotic uh, love. I mean, um, is, is distinct from eros. Well, all the more power to his elbow. I mean, it's very uh, noble that he should uphold that idea of compassion and so on. It's difficult to see how each one of us uh, are, is an embodiment of that horrible re- reality. That um, there's much room for. Uh, for uh, mutual love. I mean, the conflict with be more like it, I should have thought. But at any rate, it, it certainly undoubtedly values love against hatred and um, compassion rather than cruelty and so on. I certainly don't want to question those valuations of Schopenhauer, far from it. But ultimately, of course, is where all the ulti- one will and the will is something horrible, the ultimate ideal can only be turning against the ultimate reality. I'd
0: like to keep these two notions separate uh, for the moment, and before we move on to his idea of turning against reality, I'd like just to uh, say a little more about about his view of morals and ethics, because it was, in a sense, applied metaphysics in a rather unusual sense for a philosopher. He had, as you say, this metaphysical view that we were all ultimately one, mm-hmm. pa- uh, and again that is in common with some religions, and therefore that that, in doing you an injury I am in some significant ultimate sense injuring myself, mm-hmm. and that my ultimate oneness with you is really the basis of morality, the basis of compassion, the basis of empathy. It's why I should behave towards you in morally approved ways. and not behave towards you in aggressive ways. And you were quite right to say that there's an apparent conflict between uh, regarding the metaphysical, the ultimate metaphysical reality as awful and evil and nightmarish in the way we were talking about a few moments ago, mm. and regarding it in this context as the basis of compassion, empathy, and morality in general. I would like at this point to say that that uh, The famous fact-value distinction applies as much to Schopenhauer, in my opinion, as it does to anyone else. That is to say that you can accept his view, or a great deal of his view, about how things are, about what reality is, without accepting his evaluation of it or taking up his stance towards it. Uh, And I say that with feeling because in fact, I'm an example, I, I think, of this. I mean, I do regard very large parts of Schopenhauer's philosophy, by no means all of it, but large parts of it I regard as being valid and as having enormously rare and important and genuinely deep insights. And I think it casts great illumination. But I'm not a... A pessimist in schopenhauer's sense at all in other words i accept his picture of the way things are to an important degree but i don't at all take up his view of it all as being a nightmare or uh, you know whatever it may be so i would go along with the with the ethics of schopenhauer in fact i think his ethics is very well founded, um and wouldn't want to as it were keep that part of his philosophy with which it's in conflict
1: as you know, a good many philosophers now question the fact, value, distinction. I wouldn't wish to, I think it has a in, indispensable use myself, because we must distinguish, for example, between the way in which people behave and the way in which they ought or not to behave. The two propositions are different types. That's perfectly obvious. On the other hand, I don't think myself that one can have any interpretation of the world that doesn't contain value judgments. Value judgments of importance, of significance, and so on. And any more than you can have a history that goes beyond mere um, chronology and uh, that really tells a significant coherent story, you you can't have a history without uh, without value judgments. I don't believe in value-free history or value-free metaphysics. So I I would be, um, although I'm willing to accept some distinction, Um, I'd be very careful about um, applying it uh, myself and simply saying, well, we can have this uh, interpretation of the world on the one hand which is value-free and then the set of uh, valuations on the other because I don't think things work out in quite that way, you know.
0: No, I don't think they work out in quite that way either. uh, i was merely making the point that you could share you could have a lot of schopenhauer mm. and i was always careful not to say all but only a lot of schopenhauer's view of the way things are without sharing his value judgments i would have other value yes. judgments and i would entirely agree with you that you can't have a view with no value judgments mm. i think that's i think that's absolutely correct Um, But now, uh, let us uh, move on, as it were, to the final stage of Schopenhauer's philosophy, when he, taking his value judgment, seeing that reality in all its manifest, or in most of its manifestations, is an evil, a frightening, Mm. a nightmarish thing. The final step in his philosophy, which some have embraced and others have found impossible even to understand sometimes, is he says we must Reject this. Ultimately, we must reject reality. We must deny reality, the famous denial of the will. Can you perhaps try to explain a little more about what's involved in that concept?
1: Well, I'd say that um, if you turn, well, of course, he, uh, he um, entirely approved of the uh, asceticism, self-mortification and so on that one can find in, uh, in several of the world religions, advocated at any rate and practiced in the past, and um, that um, he th- thought that that was... Uh, constituted a stage on the way towards a kind of final rejection of the will. I don't quite know what form that would take, but it would take, the fo- I suppose, the form of an entry into a Buddhist nirvana interpreted as Nothingness. Well, Schopenhauer would say that may possibly have qualities of which we know nothing and can know nothing. But as far as we're concerned, to turn against the the the, the ultimate reality as we form a conception of it is to turn to um, nothingness, to non-existence. That's why I would say that, in spite of all the uh, uh, real uh, resemblances between, um, um, say. Uh, uh, Christianity, uh, Buddhism, and uh, Schopenhauer's philosophy. There is a fundamental difference between uh, his attitude and say that of the Christian, the uh, Muslim, and the Orthodox Jew, because it, as they believe in, uh, in God, they, they certainly wouldn't regard it as desirable that one should um, chuck a God overboard or uh, deny uh, the ultimate reality in that sense so there, there there it seems to me there is a there is a, a gulf but 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 more important because people might sweep that aside and say, well, i'm neither a Christian nor a Muslim nor a Jew, but um, even in terms of schopenhauer 's own philosophy, i don 't see how it's possible to turn against the will because it's the will uh, that has to deny itself. I am the will, and uh, if this ultimate reality is going to um, deny uh, how I can it deny itself um in and through me, it can't produce nothingness, exactly. I don't see how... how I, I, I find it very. the more I think about it, the more difficult I find to, to envisage that ultimate uh, rejection of the will is taking place when the will itself has got to do it.
0: Let us, before we finish this discussion, I'd like us to say a word or two about Schopenhauer's influence on other people. He's had enormous influence on creative artists, and I referred to that. I didn't name any, but one might name Wagner an enormous influence, Uh, Turgenev an enormous influence. In fact, lots of major novelists of the last hundred years Uh, Conrad, Thomas Hardy, Proust, uh, Thomas Mann, but perhaps in a discussion which is about philosophy what we ought to concentrate on is not that so much as his influence on other major thinkers Uh, and I think three stand out in importance, Nietzsche, Freud and Wittgenstein as having, in chronological order, as having been very obviously and strikingly influenced by Schopenhauer between his day and ours. Could you perhaps say something about his influence on Nietzsche? Well,
1: as you know, Nietzsche um, regarded uh, Schopenhauer as an educator and his early work Schopenhauer as Schopenhauer's Um, indicates I think that he thought of um, Schopenhauer as a man who wasn't content with the superficial view of things but looked underneath and wasn't afraid to look the world and history in in the face and uh, didn't try and gloss over everything as Leibniz did with talk about the best of all possible worlds but uh, really looked the world in the face and um, was therefore a man of mental integrity He also entirely agreed with Schopenhauer's subordination of intellect to will. In its first instance, a servant of the will, and um, also I think he regarded Schopenhauer as a man of great independence of character, who who didn't. Allow himself to be his views to be dictated by society, or but thought them out, or by his predecessors, for the matter of that, or other philosophers, but thought them out for himself. I think, but he came, of course, to criticise, as you know, uh, uh, Schopenhauer in the course of time for his turning away from life. And uh, although it's been said of Nietzsche by Professor Crane Brinton, the great yes-sayer spent most of his life saying no, um, uh, Nietzsche um, did officially uphold the affirming of the world as it is. And um, in a way I I sympathize with Nietzsche because I think if the world is as Schopenhauer said it is, then uh, the best thing is to try and um, alter it for the better. I don't say that Nietzsche... um, uh, well, he thought, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't agree with Nietzsche's idea of what would be for the better, but um, I, I, there I, I do agree with Nietzsche. But on the other hand, he never ceased to admire Schopenhauer and revere him as a man who'd set him on the right path, away from convention. It was a great question, I think.
0: Well, I think we must now turn finally to the latest of the great thinkers who was directly influenced by Schopenhauer, namely Wittgenstein and perhaps you'd like to conclude this discussion by uh, saying a little about schopenhauer's influence on Wittgenstein. thank you
1: yes, well that, of course that's quite um, clear, isn't it? I mean from the preparatory the, the material preparatory to the tractators in the notebooks and in the other manuscripts the debt of Wittgenstein to Schopenhauer is made quite clear. And in the Tractatus itself, this idea to which you referred earlier in our conversation of the um, correlation between the subject and um, my world, th- that is strong in, in, in Wittgenstein, the, um, that there's I and my world, and that the I, the epistemological subject, is as it were the boundary of my world. It's not an object in my world, and because if I try to think of myself, then there's the eye that's trying to think of myself. But it's on the borderline, as it were, of the world. That comes straight out of Schopenhauer. Then the famous saying in the Tractatus that if all the problems of science were answered, the problems of life wouldn't have been touched. That also really comes from Schopenhauer, I think. And it's also noteworthy that in the Tractatus, Wittgenstein makes a distinction between the will as the bearer of ethics, of which he says nothing can really be said, that's the metaphenomenal will, and the will as um, a phenomenon, which is really the, uh, uh, forms part of the subject matter of psychology rather than a philosophy for, for the author of the Tractatus, and um, therefore th- there is that distinction between the meta- metaphysical will, I think, the metaphenomenal will and the phenomenal will, which also can be um, uh, traced, I think, to, to uh, Schopenhauer. The, I should say that Wittgenstein, <laughs> in the course of time, became less and less Schopenhauerian, um, in the sense that he became less and less addicted to um, forming a system. Whereas, as you said much earlier, Schopenhauer was certainly a system builder. Uh, There is a kind of embryo system in the Tractatus, but there is very little, as we all know, in the later writings of Wittgenstein. um, But still, he undoubtedly was strongly influenced by Schopenhauer. In fact, he's about the only major philosopher of the past. Uh, It was in no sense contemporary that um, Wittgenstein had really read and studied and digested at all, I think. Um, So um, uh, uh, it shows that the influence of Schopenhauer uh, by no means ended with the 19th century, but as you said earlier, it slipped on into the 20th century and is embodied in one of the most famous philosophers of our century and time.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Copplestone.